Just like Viagra fueled rabbits on heat, the Leave Radio hosts are multiplying. This week we've lost our host, Fozzer, and instead we've gained some extra bodies. First up, the unwashed vagabond of comedy, Grant Woolcott. Hello. Hello. Second up, if Jeffrey from Fresh Prince of Bel Air had a butler, it would certainly be Ben Moss Woodward. Greetings. Third up, I was trying really hard to think of something that rhymes with a name that was funny, but I failed really hard. Welcome again, Lisa Vu. Hi. Fourthly, it's our resident entertainment officer, Chris Jarvis. Hello. And lastly, our resident historian and the friendly face of the latest Frontier newsletter, Alan Stroud. Yeah, that smile is about 10 years old now, unfortunately, but never mind. Hello. And I'm your host, John Stabler. So the good news for some people is that we're now going to be joined on a permanent basis by Grant, Lisa and Ben. So welcome to the fold, guys. I'm hoping that your comedy and uh, insights are going to improve the quality of the podcast from now on. I don't mean that sarcastically. (laughs) I genuinely do look forward to that. And we start off this episode with newsletter number 36. This week we get to look at an exciting skin on the front of a Viper, isn't it? Yes. Of the Union Jack, or would it... Is it a Union Jack in space? Just trying to show what they can do in terms of the textures, I guess. Yeah. I mean, whoever painted this is obviously responsible for the default Viper paint job in that it's a slapdash effort by the looks of it. There's loads of bits missing. Well, you know, maybe it's a slightly beaten up Union Jack in that lots of people go after it because they see... (laughs) That this this guy's blatantly showing off his patriotism. Yeah, yeah, well, he could be a football supporter, maybe. And next we had the Stellar Forge, Frontier's unique custom-made software for building the galaxy. This is something that excited you, Ben? Yes, I was reading about this, and I've always known that they're using procedural generation or building up the universe, but I never realized that they're actually forming it up. It sounds almost like atom by atom from first principles. It's so exciting that they're doing that and then accelerating the time of the universe up to 3300 and then seeing what happens. I think this is so exciting. It's, it's brilliant. It's I love it. Well, the Stellar Forge we've heard a little bit about for quite some time in that certainly in the fiction forum we'd heard the phrase talked about in terms of, you know, when we were looking at planets that we were featuring in the different stories. And Michael had, had talked about how they were throwing things into it and, you know, and seeing what comes out the other side and so on and so forth. And obviously there was a small amount of featuring in relation to it in the previous newsletters. But it is very interesting to see, uh, you know, a much more detailed explanation of how it works and how everything's pulled together. It's it's another one of those things where we're being shown the way in which the game is being developed, which is particularly interesting and particularly nice for those of us who, who perhaps are more technically minded. Yeah, so I, mean, I always thought it was going to be something, it was being made something closer to how Minecraft is, where you enter a seed and it goes off and generates the universe as it is like that as opposed to generating things and then modeling it onwards. I just, I had no idea they went into this much detail. It has been discussed a few times when Michael's been asked a couple of times about uh, what the smallest things they are that they're creating in the, the procedural engine. And, you know, and he's replied with dust, procedurally generated dust. Wow. And also, you know, we were very aware, as I say, amongst the writers, we were very aware that the delay on the star map and Drew's lovely music and uh, Grant's lovely music the delay on the star map was actually due to the fact that Michael was having to put in more and more parameters into 
the Stellar Forge to get uh, to get the map right. That involved a certain amount of adding data from previous games and also adding data that was accurate in relation to the existing galaxy. Just wondering actually about we're adding in data that's to the existing galaxy and we know that they're going off of existing star charts, I guess, yes? These charts that they're be- basing the universe off are actually pretty inaccurate from what it sounds like. They're the best we can do, but we're improving them all the time. Do you think that we should improve the galaxy as we get to know more about the galaxy as it really is? Or just accept that there are mistakes? Honestly, my view, accept it, because otherwise you're George Lucas, aren't you? <laughs> I don't want to don't land want on to... a planet and find Jar Jar Binks on there, if that's what you're God, saying. No Jar Jars, please. Don't know what anybody else thinks. I mean, would anybody be miffed if you play it one day and then you come back the next day and the planets have updated and moved a little bit and changed? I think that's uh-huh. the whole point of it, surely, it, you know, is that it, it continues to to move and evolve and change and it's it's never just a constant thing that you can predict or get used to Mm, i don't know i mean it's it's a bit different to have it move and evolve naturally or to get better star data on a particular system and instead of a gas giant you've got a you know a rock you know so yesterday you went to a gas giant and today it's a rock would that be would that be acceptable I think people are more likely to be annoyed at a new revelation and then jump into the game to try and catch them out is more likely to happen. Not only that, but I saw in, might have been Astronomy Cast or some stellar thing, that they've actually found new ways of mapping the planets and they found that because they're doing it more accurately, some of the planets, the, the first exosolar planets they've found, aren't actually there. It was actually just a speck of dust. But then because of this new thing, they then found that there are two other planets that they never knew anything about. So it's like grit on the scanoscope kind of thing. That kind of idea, yes. But you've got but... to admit, that, that's some special, you know, special class of heckler for a game when they're correcting your astrology. Uh, oh dear, nearly <laughs> <laughs> correcting your astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to cor- correct astrology. Yes. You have to keep going by the 3,000-year-old map, I believe. I think I, the, the, there is a point, and I hate to be the one to uh, introduce this phrase into this podcast, but there is an element of it killing your immersion, that you're kind of used to star systems being in a certain place. Because what we're not talking about here, I don't, I don't believe, we're not talking about every now and again one star or planet moving. The way this data is released, if they were to change it, you would go in and just see wholesale changes to the map. And there would be dozens of changes at a time, I imagine. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think just pick a point when, when you're happy and then just press go, you know, I think is, is really the best way to do well, it. I think actually, uh, Chris, you've just kind of given a prime example there that actually immersion has nothing to do with realism. It's to do with consistency. Yes, that's an excellent point. I like the caption saying, Star Forge in action, 17 Draconis. Not a lot of action going on there. <laughs> it's just, you know, a serene kind of uh, <laughs> couple of plans. Yeah, wasn't totally <laughs> sure what I was looking at there. It does make a very pretty desktop background, though. Yeah, very calming. So, I like that. That's a great phrase, though, John. <laughs> What's that? Absolutely. Lovely little pop phrase, that, you know. Immersion's not about reality. It's about consistency. There you go. Is there some way I can kind of get like a couple of quid every si- every time someone else says it? I-, I could quote you in my PhD. Oh, thanks. So, okay, that rounds that up. And in the newsletter, they went on to mention Gamescom 2014, which was a German games convention, I believe. 
Um, every time I saw one of these interviews, um, I was expecting David Breben to start talking in German because he was often, you know, there was obviously that little bit of blurb at the beginning, which was all in German. But um, they were kind enough to let him speak in his native tongue. Um, was there any reveals that any of you remember from some of these videos? There was things about 3D printed food using the food cartridges. There was a couple of people that were trying to get some kind of... Uh, anti-star citizen commentary and uh, to sort of pick into the rivalry between the two forum fans but David dealt with it in his usual way. So there were some interesting questions but I don't think there was anything groundbreaking revealed. Yeah it is particularly interesting that from a I guess from a slightly more distant perspective the sort of idea that the two games are competing you know is something that that people do sort of feature particularly with the fact that I guess it's it's competing for airtime in that regard, you know, because they're both obviously looking for, you know, for sort of media coverage and other bits and pieces. Um, so I guess, you know, the comparison is fairly natural and particularly from, you know, from people who perhaps don't know as much of the detail in relation to the, uh, you know, the crowdsource funding campaigns and how, you know, the two developers backed each other's work. I always felt that people want there to be controversy and competition between Elite Dangerous and that other game, which I can't remember now, Star Citizen. But I've just never really felt it myself. Chris Roberts has always been really nice about Frontier Development and Frontier Development have always been right nice about them. Yeah, I, I sort of have to agree in that it seems to be outside sources, so fans and media outlets that are really angling for the for the rivalry, for the good, juicy story that they can sort of, you know, get their teeth into. And neither side really wants to go down that route because ultimately I think both outfits have different visions for their respective games. They are placing different levels of importance on features. Uh, I, I don't think they're headed in the same direction just because it's ships in space doesn't mean it's the same game and i think to make that mistake would be kind of lazy you know it kind of comes in from not necessarily having a, a lot of information to begin with and sort of picking an angle and you know and i would guess as well sometimes people obviously they want to pick an angle by asking a question that they think is going to generate some provocative answers but they're not realizing that actually so many people have, have done it and tried to to do that particular line of questioning. What I'd also suggest is that I think both developers are very aware that the kind of games they want to make aren't being made or weren't being made prior to these campaigns. You know, there was a dearth of games in relation to this particular genre and this particular, you know, sort of idea of gameplay, despite the fact, obviously, it's slightly interpreted differently uh, between the two. And, you know, if you take it from the fans' point of view, they are fairly close games in terms of going, okay, I'm going to play that oh, and I'm going to play that, because if I'm interested in spaceships and space and flying around and dogfighting and stuff, I'm going to play that. And if I'm interested in it, I might play that too. So it's a no-brainer for both games to kind of support each other, to to reinvigorate this particular genre. It's not really a genre, is it? It's it's more of a, a sort of more of a niche than that, um, this particular type of computer games. And um, if they do, then hopefully, you know, People who like one will buy the other. People who like the other will will buy the other. You know, you know what I mean. 
I absolutely think that the resurgence of the broader genre, it's a great thing. Clearly, a lot of people are interested in it across all sorts of generations of gaming. This isn't just your average gamer that wants to jump on and fly a ship. It's not your average gamer, right? It's people who remember the original games, the original Elite, Frontier, whatever. And really, what Star Citizen and Elite Dangerous are doing, we should all be appreciating the resurgence. It shouldn't be about a war, it should be like bringing back a great era of gaming. I did feel at E3, No Man's Sky seemed to get a lot of the press because it's out for the PlayStation, and it, it felt to me at least it was stealing a lot of Elite's thunder because it's out on a console versus a PC. And it's already got planetary landings, which is you know, it's ahead of the game. But I was looking at some videos of it. And to me, the bit where you fly up into space and the bit where you fly down to the planet, I'm not, it looks like a cheat. I'm not sure quite what's going I, on. I it. felt like that. It looks very nice and very pretty, but I agree. It feels very, as you say, it feels like it's a cheat. And it, I think it's a lot it more stylized game though, right? It's, you know, it's not really the same thing again. No, other than not. mechanically, it's flying a ship, it's landing on planets, it's exploring. That that's like saying you can summarize a game by its mechanics. You can't. I think as well you've got to to look at it as um it encourages a particular type of gameplay. And I think, you know, if we look at all three games in a spectrum, uh, not a spectrum computer <laughs> in a spectrum. If we look at all three games, then uh, you've got a certain type of gameplay is encouraged by Star Citizen, a certain type of gameplay is encouraged by No Man's Sky, and then in Elite, you can say, well, actually, you know, there's a little bit of what Star Citizen does in Elite, and there's a little bit of what No Man's Sky does in Elite, and there's also these things and these things as well. Now, obviously, we're going to focus more on Elite because that's the nature of, you know, the podcast that we're producing. That's the, that's the development we're following. I'm sure if there was a, a No Man's Sky podcast, then they would probably look at it in a similar way, but they'd centre No Man's Sky. The same with Star Citizen, I think. Okay, good stuff. Thank you for applying to join Leave Orbital Control. Please confirm your name. You are Ben Moss Woodward? Yes. You are Grant Walcott? I'm looking at ships. Can't afford any. You are Lisa Wu? Yeah. Please take a seat. Your entrance exam will last 30 minutes. Answer all questions as best as you can. Please remain calm during the test. I just wanted to get to the comms chatter, first of all, because this is something of interest to me. Lego! I love Lego. Ever since I became a father, um, I was waiting for the day my son Evan would get old enough to actually play with Lego. And some of these Lego models of elite ships are, I must admit, quite interesting. I particularly like the Sidewinders with the Coriolis station. I did a quick back of a beer mat calculation. And unless he's messed with the perspective on that picture, that um, Lego Coriolis station must be uh, two and a half metres wide. I was looking at the model of the Coriolis, and I think they've done some fancy jiggery-pokery there. It's absolutely photoshopped. It's based on real pieces, but it's absolutely photoshopped. But to be honest, the images are so cool that I don't care. I wish you'd release the plans for these. I want to make these, I have to admit. 
Good stuff. Would you construct them with the correct colours or would you just do the bits and then shoot a black and white picture? Realistically, because I've had this with another model, I would really want the instructions. I would find them. I would realise I don't have the bricks in the right colour and then I probably wouldn't make the models. Okay. Because I would want to make them with the right colours, but I would not be committed enough to source the correct colours. <laughs> And also mention in this uh, newsletter of Fantasticon, which did happen uh, as scheduled, and I believe that we produced a podcast from there, didn't we, Alan? Yeah, Chris and I did a, a short sort of rundown and reflection on what was going on, and um, Chris also recorded quite a lot of the writer interview stuff as well. You know, it was uh, uh, it was a great little event and uh, lots of, of sort of retro elements, um, not just elite. Um, you had uh, the rather odd spectacle of a, a speeder bike and a, a scout from Star Wars lying in the corner as if he'd been knocked off and knocked unconscious. So, you know, we we're all hoping to take the speeder bike home. Probably going to be a bit quicker than my car. But um, but yeah, there were a load of, of different activities going on. We had more of uh, the RPG and uh uh, more talks with uh, with other authors in the Fantastic Books uh, stable uh, and releases of uh, of other books as well. So great time had all round, and it was nice as well. Obviously, it was the first chance that we got to see the actual physical copies of the books, which um, hopefully in the next few weeks uh, a large amount will be arriving at my house, and I can start issuing them to some of the Kickstarter backers, which would be really cool. Excellent. Just to let listeners know that there is a special RPG episode of Elite Encounters, the dating game, currently in the works, and so that should be out soon. Welcome, citizen. Thank you for applying to join Lave Orbital Control. Please confirm your name. You are Chris Forrester? Yes. This is your 14th application to Lave Orbital Control. Is that correct? Uh, Please take a seat. Your entrance exam will last 30 minutes. Answer all questions as best as you can. Please remain calm during the test. time for us to move on to newsletter number 37 and we start with the peak of the week which was a video of an animation of a gas giant any thoughts on this well it, okay. it kind of looks a little bit like you know some of the stuff we see from nasa footage isn't it and bits and pieces when you see stuff on the news it's pretty cool to see that they have managed to replicate a similar shot that you would see from a telescope you know those sort of sped up footage that you would see from a telescope pretty cool that we know that that's the game engine that's producing the same stuff um obviously not uh, by comparison to graphics that uh, that we're seeing in game and you know the gorgeous vistas that we're kind of getting out of some of the screenshots that people are taking it, it really isn't a comparison but it does have some definite technical positive I think the key is in the fact that they say it's work in progress, which it obviously is. Um, once they've had a little bit more time to work on it, then I'd be quite excited to see it within the context that we all expect it to be in and, and see how gorgeous it is with sort of storms raging across the surface and whatnot. Great stuff. And then we come to what I thought was the highlight of the newsletter, uh, and surprisingly it was actually user-generated, is smuggling in Beta 1. 
Now, it's not something I've tried myself, and if you watch the video, you probably see for yourself why. It's a pretty tricky manoeuvre. But basically, there's a player who goes cold and turns off his engines and basically coasts into a station, so he avoids the scanners of the uh, circling defence security services. So uh, what do you guys think of this? I fought Commander Isonona back in Alpha 2. And we had probably the most memorable dogfight that I had in all the experience of testing at that point because he was really, really making use of flight assist off and, you know, was one of the early proponents of it. And then to see this video come up on the newsletter, I mean, it is stunning, you know, the way in which he, he manages to put this sequence together in terms of what he does is just stunning. And, and I mean, if, if anybody wants to see the kind of thing that Elite is attempting to capture in terms of gameplay, this really is a, an excellent example, particularly in the way that you have the in-game rules and the ways in which you can circumvent the in-game rules. And that, you know, by in-game rules, I don't mean out-of-game rules, i.e. hacking, you know, the, the sort of uh, elements of what's there. I mean, the in-game rules in terms of security are set up like this, and you can infiltrate, and you can stealth, and you can do this, and you can do that. It is a fantastic little operation that he manages to put together, all for four tons of liquor, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and to use a buzzword, it's emergent gameplay, really, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, on YouTube at the moment, it's got 68, well, nearly 69,000 views. I mean, obviously, some of that will be down to the fact that it's been in the newsletter, but also uh, a lot of other gaming websites have picked it up. It was it was quite impressive, and it, it caught the media's attention. And uh, a lot of the comments um, from people who aren't necessarily Elite Dangerous fans are very positive. Just the fact that you, you have this emergent gameplay has is, is really piqued their interest. Lisa? As a relative newcomer to Elite, I feel like it exemplifies all of the really great stuff that is in and that's coming in Elite. I mean, it's a beautiful piece of piloting for a start, but I really think it showcases just how great the game can be if you can get your head around the physics of it and interacting with it. It's great. It's a great video. It really is. Any more for any more? I think it's a great video and I love the idea of it, but at the moment we have quests to go and kill Federation ships or Iranian ships. Not the actual ones where you've got to go into the war zone to kill them, but actual just kill system of defence craft. And even if you find a lone system defence craft in the middle of nowhere and you kill him in the black with no witnesses, no nothing, you still get a bounty on it. And... Is that how things are meant to work? Is he somehow meant to tell people I'm being attacked by Commander Edelweiss? Or because I got him and there were no witnesses, is there no proof? Hmm, good point. I don't know the answer, unfortunately. I just picked up some of those missions just today, actually, in Beta 1. I was deliberately hunting guys down without any witnesses. And yet all of a sudden I see, well, you killed this guy and you've got a... 100 credit bounty for shooting him, 300 credit for killing him. And I think I've got to do this five or six times, and I get a paltry 7,000 credits reward for fixing it. That doesn't seem right when I consider how much money I'm going to lose because there aren't any witnesses. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can understand why they want to put that type of mission in, in that it's kind of putting you down a path, isn't it? That if yeah. you start taking out federal forces, then in effect, you're going against that faction in the long term. So it's almost like picking a side in a way. So 
you may find that you know people with imperial leanings will be quite happy to go and do that because they don't care if they're hated by the federation but the players that want to try and stay neutral maybe it's not going to be their cup of tea really yeah i mean i love the mission i like the idea of finding this lone viper pilot i don't know if it's working as intended at the moment or if there's things that are meant to be coming in later i've got this feeling i remember them talking about witnesses to crimes and that's why i was deliberately choosing things without any witnesses yeah Right, and then we move on to my second favourite part of the newsletter, which was Outposts, which is basically smaller kind of space stations, in effect, which you can land on to fill up with fuel and maybe get some basic supplies. Um, but these will be in further reaches of systems, you know, some of the systems on the frontier, for instance, where there's not going to be a proper space station. When I first saw this image, I was instantly, I thought of Spaceballs, the movie, and like the kind of the space side cafe that they land their Winnebago on. Um, what did you think, guys? Go for it, Alan. The really interesting thing about the outposts is, um, I mean, they've talked about how they're going to be in the middle of nowhere, sort of a lifesaver and the kind of almost an oasis you're going to find that um, that can kind of help you in places where you're trying to get to other spots. Um, for me, the most interesting thing here was that when I wrote The Labour Revolution, I had one or two places where I was doing some journeying and tried to guess a little bit about how we would have smaller space stations that had outside coupling. And I had no idea what they'd be called or anything else. And I just put it in there and I was kind of thinking, you know what, what might happen is when it goes through the approval process, this might get picked up. And it wasn't. And uh, I thought, oh, that's cool. Well, maybe they'll have something like that. Or I've got a bit of a get out clause in the fact that, you know, my book set 35 years before. And then, of course, this turns up in the newsletter, and this is the first that I had heard that they were going to have something like a small outpost. I mean, we've, we've heard about mining stations, and we've heard about pirate bases before now, but these kind of little tiny outposts, you know, sort of fledgling space stations out on the fringe of everything or in the places that you don't necessarily visit very often, I think it's just great. And um, I'm really interested to find out what the different method of docking on some of these places is going to be. The other interesting thing about them as well is that uh, unlike a space station, once you dock at them, you're going to be quite exposed. And they even hinted at the fact that if you arrive at one of these outposts and there's nowhere to park, it's going to be possible for you to encourage people to move along, um, probably with the use of a laser, which I thought was great. I wonder if you'd be able to blow them up. That could be quite interesting. Well, I think yeah. that's what they were subtly hinting at. <laughs> it wasn't very subtle. Uh, I'm just wondering, though, if you guys noticed the name, is it Horace Hold or Chorus Hold or something like that? The name of the file is that it's a cafe. So are we having zero-G cafes now in space? Truck stop in the middle of the universe. It is. It's a truck stop. But also in the second one, if you look at the bottom left of that image, you've got the three cargo hold, gas holder things or whatever they are. And then just sort of up and to the right of that, that looks like it's where you're docking. So you're not actually inside, I think, on that one. The interesting thing about the second one, the, the landing pads one, um, I have these science fiction books that, you know, that, that sort of stayed with me after I read them, you know, that inspire me when I'm writing and doing other stuff. And one of the ones that um, that really does stay with me is the original novelization of Battlestar Galactica. And in the original novelization of Battlestar Galactica, when the 
human fleet is blown up by the Cylons, um, Starbuck goes off and lands on this tiny remote outpost just to refuel his, his ship and then, you know, takes off and goes and manages to get back to the Galactica. But it reminds me of that, you know, just the idea of this automated landing pad that is probably little more than a than a fuel stop, really. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the variation in that well, one of them's called a cafe and one of them is a, an industrial. So you're actually going to have this variation between the outposts that some will probably be a bit more specific than others. A cafe will be a kind of a more just general you know, hub for pilots where they can get uh, supplies and refuel, whereas the industrial one may act as a kind of hub between industrial systems so that you don't necessarily have to travel into the heart of a system to take advantage of you know, a trade route. I'm wondering if we'll also get things on the outskirts of the system effectively acting almost like a, a duty-free area. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Well, I mean, it would certainly help in terms of customs in that if you're, you know, maybe a little bit dodgy, you know, you don't want to be seen in the, in the centre of a system near the bigger stations. But if there's an outpost you can trade with, the security might be a bit more lax. Okay, and now we come to the less interesting part of the newsletter. Alan Stroud manages to get a massive plug. How, how did you manage that, Alan, for your excellent book, Lave Revolution? It actually it came up a couple of weeks ago in that um, they'd asked to do some features on the on the books in the newsletters. And I think I was the first person to reply. I think that was really uh, all that it came down to. But it is great to see that there will be a consistent feature over the next few weeks. So you will see a different book featured next and so on. And it is very nice to see that the official fiction is kind of getting a bit of a place now that it's it's finished and it's ready. And, uh, you know, and people can go out and get it, which has a bit of a, a route in for people to get into the game, too. So, yeah, I, I was just anything that, you know, that they want me to, to kind of give them in terms of information of, of what I've done and what, what, you know, the book's about. I'm happy to produce and to put in there. OK, I take it we've all read the book here. I have. I finished it this morning. I, I haven't read it because my special copy hasn't arrived yet, has it, Alan? No, um, I'm due to pick up a lot of copies in the next week. I was just testing the, the fellow hosts to see how uh, dedicated they were. Ben, what did you think of the book? Alan, uh, don't hate me. I did find it slow to get into, but once I got into it, I really got into it, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Absolutely. I think, you know, each of the writers has got a slightly different style in terms of the way in which they're writing what they're writing. And yeah, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, everybody's got a preference. And the best thing you can do is is express your preference and, and kind of choose what you want to choose and enjoy what you, you want to enjoy. I, I, I'm not precious about these things. At the end of the day, if, if people enjoy what I did, then that's great. And yeah, you know, I mean, there'll be certain things that people want more of, certain things that people want less of. I take it all on board. I look at what I'm I'm writing next, and I see, uh, you know, I see what works. I also think it's the kind of thing that it, it because you've got so much detail in there. I want to probably read it about another two times to actually feel that I've read it. Yeah, Grant said that, didn't you, Grant? I think it's quite good. Yeah. <laughs> quite good. yeah. I've had a long time where I've not been able to get into fiction at all as much as I'd like. I used to read all the time, and then. For the past six years, I've just got out of practice. Just constant interruptions mean you just can't get through a book, so it's a nightmare. And I've started off with the um, the Galantz books, and I tried and I struggled and I struggled. And then the fantastic books came out on ebook, and I thought, right, I'm going to give this a go. And I found myself 
getting through them with relative ease, actually. Maybe getting a little bit confused because I'm not used to sort of taking in that detail and having to maybe reread a trap just to try and catch up. Okay, that's where that guy's going. That's where he's come from. And then when I got into that sort of last, uh, hit the 70% of the bookmark, I was basically racing in the car to get back somewhere where I could get everything done, sit down and get to the next chapter and get to the next chapter. And then the ending was just one of those wonderfully uh, bittersweet moments for me. Absolutely. Yeah, I love the ending of it. Well, I was going to say to you, Ben, whenever you give a writer criticism, you need to kind of wrap it up in a compliment. So you say something like, I found the book a bit slow to get into, kind of like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> yeah, Lord of the Rings is one of my favourite books, though. Yeah, there you go, there you go. And on to mostly harmless questions. Uh, there's a very interesting one here from Mark Bond, who asked, will there be a cloaking device in Elite Dangerous? Um, I think a lot of people who'd been on the DDF already knew the answer to this. It was um, a resounding no. Basically, I, I think quite rightly, they take a lot of pride in their heat mechanics. And you are effectively cloaked from scanners if, if you're running cold. And to be honest, if somebody hasn't got their engines on, it is pretty hard to see them flying around in space as it is. So they just think that complete 100% cloaking would maybe unbalance the game a little bit too much. Did anyone else have any thoughts on that? Really, the stealth mechanic has become a gameplay asset, hasn't it? You know, and the heat system and everything else is much more incorporated into the game. You know, I played Elite when it had a cloaking device and the cloaking device was was very cool. In on the Atari version, it was great, but you know, it was a very specialist piece of equipment. And once you got it, you had certain advantages that other people didn't have. And and the ECM jammer as well was was very cool. But in this case, we've got much more complete set of gameplay rules with the stealth system. So I think it it's really good, and you can relate it back to the video because that obviously that demonstrates them. Sure. And of course, you know, a, a, a full stealth system doesn't make that much of a difference in a single player game, whereas obviously it will in a multiplayer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I love the idea of the stealth system, and I love the, the idea that we have of the mechanics. But one thing that I felt with the current heat-only mechanics is I can be looking at a ship, which I can see maybe 1,000, 2,000 meters away, but because it's running cold... I can't have it on my scanners, even though I can see the thing. And I would like some kind of visual scanner, effectively, that allows me to at least have it targeted if I can see the thing. Well, I don't know, because I think the targeting is also part of the heat mechanic in that if you've got gimbaled weapons, then somebody who knows how to use stealth mechanics basically renders them almost useless or, or at least makes you fall back on conventional targeting. So in those terms, I, I, I still like it. I know what you mean. If they're in visual range, why aren't they on your scanner? But, you know, if the scanner is using a completely different technology to your eyes, then I, I think it's acceptable. So, Grant? I was just going to say Ben wants a win button. No, I've got a pair of eyes and I can use them. Well, you see, that's the way I think it's important that, you know, because that's where your choice of weaponry is going to come in. Because <clears throat> if you're using gimbal, you're screwed. You're never going to hit that sword unless you sort of like, you know, strafe all over the shot. So I think, you know, the, the eye element it brings it down to you as a pilot, Ben. And if you're just not good enough, just remember it's beta. Stop moaning. It's not the final game yet. And practice and get better. On. <laughs> yeah. I have to say I'm kind of in agreement with Grant here okay. in that, you know, I'm a big proponent of non-gimbaled weapons and the stealth mechanic has to have a distinct benefit. And I think the distinct benefit is, you know, shows from the lack of scanner, lack of being able to track, so on and so forth. 
So yeah, fixed weapons for the win if you want to take people out who are going to stealth you. That, to me, is is the way in which the specialisms work, and I think it should. No, I completely agree. I love the idea. I, I would just like some kind of proper long-range fighter as opposed to the Viper where I can jump like down to the local co-op. I was just thinking, actually, that it might be nice if you had a, a way of visually selecting a target, you know, as in actually manually going, aim at that bit there. Something like that, aye. So that you could overrule, but it wouldn't work with tracking weapons. So, I think... Yeah, or, or gimbal off, you know, tracking off. Yeah, you totally know. agree, Gim- gimbal off. Like, you, oh, yeah. with turrets, you can turn them to be forward only, can't you? Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't be a bad plan. You could have something like essentially fixed yeah. and it would just lock them basically where they were and then you could just manually fire them. Uh, it might be quite interesting. I mean, if it worked in a particular way and you they literally just froze in place, then, of course, if they'd been tracking previously, your guns would be out of line. <laughs> that would be hilarious. So that, would, that would make it very interesting in terms of trying to play that one. Unless you just had it so that you, when you said, okay, gimbal off, then it sets them to whatever the default. Is the convergence in the bullets, or they fly straight ahead, they don't sort of have a meeting point sort of two, three hundred metres away, do they? No, the point here being is, of course, is if they automatically centre, if you gimbal off and they centre back, then and start acting like fixed weapons then actually there's no hard skill element if you think about it it would also lend itself to more interesting maneuvers as well because if you can set them at a at a slanted angle and then go gimbal off then you can kind of track an opponent at a slanted angle It'd be really interesting then uh, because you that might be a good defensive maneuver in that regard um as well so you know so yeah so i think a, a gimbal off idea might be quite cool yep and Commander Razor Mouse, probably named after one of his peripherals, asks, Searching the galaxy, might we be so lucky as to come across ancient artifacts, derelicts, dead stations, and even with the planetary landings, abandoned ruins? And Frontier said, yes, we plan to seed all sorts of things across the galaxy, although their origins will not be clear. Care to elaborate, Alan? Well, the fact that they added an ellipsis on the end indicates that that conversation is not over, doesn't it? I mean, you know, there's quite a lot already in the background history. If you look through uh, the Gazetteer, there is mention of an alien artifact appearing in the Sol system during the third millennium. So that story is certainly not completed. And we know that that artifact exists and was was taken to one of the, the science laboratories in the Sol system. We also know that the Thargoids are out there. We also know that there are several mentions of ships disappearing and of ancient artifacts on some of the planets, particularly remains of old cultures prior to the humans arriving. There are also a couple of planets that were mentioned that previously been, um, uh, there was some sort of uh, attempt to terraform these planets, but not to terraform them to human conditions, to terraform them for aliens. So that's very interesting. We know as well the, the nature of AI and the nature of uh, artificial intelligence having been pushed to the fringes. There's probably something there that may come back to haunt us. So there's quite a lot already um, sewn into the backstory and history of the game. All we've done in terms of constructing the fiction and constructing some of the, the initial guidebook premises for the game when it comes out is to ensure that those things are kept. Because 
they're exciting stories and yeah don't you want to be the person who discovers what that ancient artifact was that was floating around in the soul system all those years ago don't you want to be the person that discovers the next one and you know or something else that no one else has ever seen so yeah i think frontier are gonna jump all over making sure there is lots of stuff for you to discover and find out about well i'm just thinking of that i mean you mentioned you know players being the ones to discover something it would be kind of cool if when those discoveries happened that they kind of got folded into the lore of the universe and i guess that could include some of the players as well yeah absolutely i mean to a point and ben's gonna love me for saying this no man's sky has demonstrated some specific methods whereby the exploration element of the game could be developed in particular ways one of the things that no man's sky has is it has the ability for you know the discoveries of individual players to be recognized um, and tagged which is a really interesting piece of, of gameplay we don't know yet how frontier are going to work on that we do know that map data will be a commodity that can be sold so that will be very interesting to see how that pans out similarly we also know that some of the players have already decided to get together and create groups where they're going to go off into the vastness of space and try and travel as far as they can groups like the the grand expedition group who are present on the the frontier forums their plan is very much to try and keep that as a immersive element as a role-playing element to encourage the idea of commanders and named commanders rather than you know than players being the the people who are reporting back and giving the information so you know it is quite exciting how all of this can develop narratives and can develop stories and i think that only serves to make people think that they can carve out their own niche within this massive game if you've got a rock or two that's named after you if you've got a planet that's named after you and so on and so forth it's you know it's exciting isn't it to think that this is the nearest thing you'd ever be able to do to explore these things in your lifetime and actually you can find ways to you know, to have them tagged in some way that is connected to the way in which you're playing that game ben don't you think that if you can as you say tag a planet won't that cheapen people have paid several bazillion pounds to have a planet or a station or whatever named after them in during the kickstarter not really, because I don't think the, the process will be as straightforward. I mean, the No Man's Sky process is very straightforward and is just about discovered, discovered. You know, I, I don't think the process will be anywhere near as straightforward in Elite Dangerous in that if I am the, you know, the prospector, the explorer that goes off and first finds um, a planet that is rich in mineral deposits or is rich for colonization, I'm going to go back and sell that map data. Now, the naming rights might well be part of what has to be sold or something else. You know, we don't know. So it doesn't necessarily have a straightforward connection in the, the same way that No Man's Sky would look at it. And I think the Frontier guys are, are aware of how their Kickstarter rewards have to shape a certain amount of the way in which the game works anyway. So, yeah, so, you know, I think that's I think that's important. Maybe it's something that when you've found it, that planet would then become available to buy on the store or something like that. Yeah, or well, the naming rights would. Yeah, the naming you know, rights. Uh, certainly, certainly the map in itself would be one thing. We'd have to see. We don't know yet how they're going to, to work on that. Okay, talking of players' actions shaping content, moving on to Galnet News. 
this has been a feature of a lot of the newsletters now where ongoing events and player interactions within the game is kind of producing information for people to read. Alan, what are you thinking of this? Yeah, I think the Galnet news feature is a really excellent idea. You know, I, I really do like anything that brings fiction into the newsletter and brings fictional ideas to kind of hook us in towards the game itself. Unfortunately, it's kind of got a little dry sometimes. I think certainly newsletter newsletter 36 was pretty good. Newsletter 37 it kind of feels like an accountancy report. So I'm kind of hoping that we can maybe go to some of the stuff that was done in the Frontier First Encounters newsletters and, uh, and news feeds and maybe sort of get a little bit of that, that zip that they had, that bit of sensationalism maybe bring back uh, you know, one or two of the publications that were, because uh, certainly some of them were quite sensational as opposed to um, quite as uh, dry. That said, though, of course, we are in a limited game at the moment. So I guess you know, they, they kind of want to ensure that we don't start sort of talking too much about some of the wider narratives that are going on in the game, because we're only at a testing phase. You know, I don't know if anybody's noticed whether we have any form of chronological date set for where we are in the beta at this stage. Anyone know? It's, it's hard to Isn't tell. Just today's yeah. date, but 3300. Yeah, I mean, that's what I see, but... My thought was that the launch, because we know that the game starts in 3300, my thought was that, yeah, because you're wiping and everything else, that the launch would be 3300 if you see what I mean. I was curious to see if they'd, if they'd started advancing the date, as it mm. were. Well, I just think that maybe that's going to force them to make sure they release it this year so that they're still in 3300, I guess. Lisa, did you have something to say? Yeah, sort of more the same, really, which I don't want to rehash the point too much. And this will probably sound a little bit dirty, but I maybe want a little bit more tabloid and a little less financial times, if that makes sense. I can see how they've tried to jazz it up a little bit in newsletter 37 by putting some of the the graphs in but really looking... that that just turned my brain off completely like I don't want to look at flowcharts or graphs or you're wanting a ganker's corner who's the who's ganking who? No, not even that. I just maybe something that is not about markets and I don't even think it has to be that insightful into the emerging narrative uh, i just feel like maybe something other than fish yeah well we had we used to have in frontier first encounters there was rig which was random intergalactic gossip and random intergalactic gossip was really cool in that what it did is you had the the slightly more serious newsletters talked about particular aspects of you know emergent incidents and what have you so Tilalia and uh, and the civil war and stuff and then random intergalactic gossip would come in with something really really left field i mean there were there were some articles on on all sorts of stuff you had uh things that were current and then they would sensationalize them and go way off kilter and then things that were just entirely different so some of the newsletters would produce stuff on the best equipment to take exploring Stupid, stupid dating and that's, things, and that which is, is rubbish. That's but the yeah, kind just, of thing I would like to see to start to creep into it, to break it up a little bit. It doesn't have; they don't have to go entirely the other way and miss out all of the market data. I just feel like 
a little bit of influx of life into it other than just stats would yeah, really yeah. make an inroad into improving the newsletter a little bit. I mean, we could go with some of the stuff that we used in Second Tech. I mean, you've got football results that we've done, you know, and actually having something like that would make it breathe a little bit more, wouldn't it? Yeah, it doesn't um, or... even... Yeah, it, it can be stuff that's in the universe it doesn't have to be stuff that's in the game right now it, i just want a little bit more flavor text in my newsletter well i mean the first thing is at the moment we've just got down there and that doesn't give us the ability to have kind of political slants or even propaganda it would be good if you could have multiple news sources which even contradicted each other that kind of stuff i would love to see i um, agree yeah and also i think that you could have a subversive page three which was always a disgusting Thargoid draped over a car or something like that. <laughs> Grant. I'm just thinking of the lonely commander seeks a wingman, must have a GSOH and a large beam laser. Have you ever seen an ad which said <laughs> that they're looking for somebody that doesn't have a good sense of humour? Well, I don't or, or, you know, mildly attractive. I always love that one. <laughs> it gives you hope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> ben. Well, the newsletter, even as it is, does mention sports results, entertainment news and celebrity gossip are available via upgraded subscriptions. So maybe we've got some hope, Lisa. I know, but I just want that now. I don't want upgraded. I don't want it alluded to. I want something else other than fish. You want it and you want it now. Absolutely. What I want is actually to have all this available via... uh, full-time dynamic website that's what i'd love or a mobile including phone. including my fish charts which i would absolutely hate i'm very glad that they don't have that we're actually missing something here because in one of the newsletters they did actually mention that there's going to be a mobile phone app and we kind of i think we've skipped it i'm sorry about that alan uh which which bit was that i don't think it was 30, i think it might have been 35 that we've missed as well Okay, I mean, my my view on on APIs and stuff is is fairly re- well recorded. I don't mind it as long as it encourages people to go in and play the game. I'm less inclined towards anything that that gives us information exterior to the game that doesn't encourage you to go in and play. I welcome if Frontier are looking at ways in which the information can be pushed out, but only if it is done in such a way as it encourages people to go and play. Well, I think it does, because from what I've seen, it's quite limited. It only gives you stuff like information about the market where you're currently docked, but Mm -hmm. it does allow you to have a look at your ship, and maybe in the future you'll be able to swap out your weapons while you're in work before you get home to play, I guess. I was going to say, yeah, I can see, you know, that that some of that will be useful, particularly as well. You know, I mean, I've already mentioned the Grand Expedition, guys. We've talked a little bit about how the best way, because people are going to publish information. It's going to happen. Players are going to publish it. Stuff they found, stuff that they're interested in, they're going to publish it. It is usually down to the way in which you publish it. Publish it in a particular way. It encourages people to play the game. It's just a case of doing that. And I think that having all of this information freely available in a way that you can explore the universe without actually having to fight through Elite Dangerous's currently pretty clunky interface for figuring things out, especially for figuring out charts, data, and stuff like that, having all that information effectively in Excel, basically, that would allow me to sit back, think about things, make strategic decisions, and then go into the game to act upon them, as opposed to 
fighting with the UI of the game to make a best guess. I have to I have to disagree with you there, Ben, because having played many other multiplayer games over the years that are information and detail heavy, it's always player tools that fill that gap. And I don't feel like that's something that Frontier need to do. Players are going to do it anyway. No matter how Frontier end up implementing that feature, if that's what they want to do, somebody's going to have a problem with it. Somebody's not going to like it. Somebody's going to go, well, it doesn't include this. So you're still going to have players filling that gap. I would love the idea and of it being a proper player done thing, Lisa. I just I just don't... Uh, well, yes, no, sure. And you'll, you probably will get a properly player done thing, somebody out there will have the time and resources to dedicate towards it. I just don't think it's something that Frontier themselves need to address. If they want to, then that's their choice. But I don't think it's something they need to incorporate personally into the game when players are perfectly capable of filling that void and other players are perfectly capable of finding others who have filled that void for them. And I guess my view is slightly different to both of you then in that I'd, I'd really prefer that it wasn't done in any way, shape or form. Right, but um, you and me and know, Alan, that we can't stop people from doing it. No, absolutely. It, but we can absolutely. say to Frontier, we don't think it's a good idea for you to do it because other people are going to do it anyway. So why don't you just refocus that time and, and resource on something else? You see, this is where we disagree and that I think that it's important that Frontier do do it because I think that if they do, then what they can do is they can shape it in such a way as it encourages gameplay as opposed to shaping it as, you know, you see already uh, third-person APIs that have been produced that actually don't encourage gameplay and they encourage people to sit back and look at stuff well, and then make That's their, the fine line that they tread, though, in that case, is that, uh, you know, at what point do they reveal too much and at what point do they reveal too little that then prompts the player base to go digging? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I think the the issue is often is about, you know, the way in which you present information. And I think actually if, if Frontier are the, the people doing the design, then, you know, they have a, a, a sort of a an ability to look at that wholesale to try and uh, determine the way in which the information is presented. Whereas an individual player who is electing to create a, an API, actually what their priority is, is that people will use their API. And then they can kind of look at it and go, great, look at what I did, you know, and, and, and everything else. And I'm not saying that people don't do it for the kudos. They don't do it for the, you know, the big ups and everything else. They don't do that. They do it because they, they feel they're helping. They feel that they're they're encouraging the game. They feel that they're, you know, they're, they're contributing. And I, I think that's that's entirely fine. But sometimes that contribution can be at the detriment of getting people to play the game. And I think that's my concern. And that was my concern at the very start when I did say that the worst thing this game could become is essentially a playground between two wikis. You know, a wiki that the developers run to have the information and a wiki that the players run to collate the information. Because at the end, what you end up with is sort of trying to bypass the environment in the middle between the two. You mean the wiki that I run? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, actually, actually, John, not the case in that actually at the moment, the information that the Wikia produces is general information. Mm. It's it's not trying to tell me where my best trade route is, unless you've updated it recently, and it is. I, I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> going to be possible looking at the way that, you know, the player feedback going into yeah. the trading system. You know, these trade routes will dry up 
if they're used I mean, if heavily. You... So it kind of gets, it's not that isn't actually suitable for a wiki in the long run. So Yeah, and if you look at something like Jades, some of the stuff on, on Jades.org, where it is looking at Frontier First Encounters and all the collation of missions and information related to the missions, that information is there now that the game is quite old. And it gives you an insight into what the missions, you know, particularly where the flawed missions, the ones that weren't completely coded, what they were supposed to do. So that's fine. If we had something like Jade's right now, you know, with Elite Dangerous Missions, uh, when you get to here, do this. Make sure you go to here before you go to here to do this and blah, 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 blah. There's no discovery for me there. I genuinely don't want to be told how to do stuff. I've actively left groups and left chat rooms because people are talking too much about the best way to do things. I don't want to know because I want to find out. And, you know, and I'm happy to be frustrated because when I get it right, I want to feel like it's, you know, me that's got it right. You know. Okay. I mean, just, just to go back to something that you said before about how bringing players into the game, you know, is a good thing that, mm. that can happen. You know, I was always thinking it'd be great if there was like a news feed which gave players valuable information which made them want to log on. So, for instance, if it did reveal that someone was blockading a starport or something so it was going to affect the market or whether war had broken out somewhere, it might actually mm. make players say, oh, right, I want to get on, I want to get online tonight because this is happening in the game. I mean, that that was my personal take on it. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? And Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you can, as long as it's done, done with that in-game perspective you know what i was talking about earlier with the grand expedition looking at it and, and being from the character perspective that gives you the sense of being in a story you know and i think that's the starting point and i think gownet has that you know gownet is is in game it's just gone a bit dry but i think we can all agree that gownet needs perhaps to uh, to sort of be a bit more dynamic in terms of the content that's produced. And at the end of the day, you can also, you can put content in that you're never going to see in any other way, which I think is fine because if you're, if you're tapping into like planetary news or you're tapping into political news that is local to particular systems, you can invent all sorts of stories that people may not be able to interact with in detail in the game, but maybe there's a mission that just relates to it in a very, very tiny way. And they go, oh, yeah, I read that from the newsletter. You see, so it starts to feed together. All of that, yes. Oh, Fozza would be disappointed. We all agreed at the end. Welcome, citizens. Well done for completing your entrance exams to leave orbital control. You have successfully passed. You may now take up senior positions on the station. On behalf of the station commander and chief of operations, welcome aboard. Okay, so that's pretty much it for this episode. We just wanted to put a call out to all the listeners. You'll notice that we've got some new hosts what's basically going to happen in the future is we're going to have a, a bit of a rotation so that people can have holidays and maybe we can kind of share the load so what we're looking for from you guys are suggestions for official lave roles job um, titles for our new uh, recruits 
The one stipulation, obviously, is that we don't want anybody to be lower ranked than Second Tech Fozzer. Uh, he's not here at the moment, so he won't mind me saying that. So yeah, we'll, we, we've got some of our own suggestions, but we're we're happy to open open the floor to others. So feel free to send your suggestions to us at our email address, info at laveradio.com. You can tweet us at laveradio or leave them on the Facebook page. Okay, so that's it. So that just leaves me to thank Lisa Vu. Thank you. Thank you very much to Grant. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Chris Jarvis. See ya. And as always, thank you very much, Alan Strout. Thank you, John. I'm John Stabler. This has been Lave Radio. During the test, please remain calm. Please remain calm. Please remain calm during the test. Thank you for replying. Please remain calm during the test. Time allowance expired. Apologies, citizen, but you have failed the leave orbital control exam. Medical team to the examination hall. Medical team to the examination hall. Medical team to the examination hall. Two seconds, I'll be right back.